1: Learn more about Winston Prep and register for an open house at www.winstonprep.edu.
0: And that's a little bit of the famous song, You Better Sit Down, Kids, Sunny, and Share. I bet you remember that if you're a devotee of 60s music. I am. A song always made me cry. And divorces are never easy for children, ever. They're never easy for children. And sometimes they're easier than at other times for grownups. But every now and then, in about 5% of cases, things go completely off the rails. And the acrimony between the spouses is not, able to be explained in a rational way. And very often there are credible allegations of true abuse and violence within a home that lead to terrible, terrible, terrible consequences. Uh, We here in Connecticut have been exposed to, have reported on, have mourned the loss of women who have been involved in ugly divorces. We've done many different many, many, many different segments in this show on the fact that the, in fact, the most dangerous time for a woman in an abusive marriage is when she decides to leave. And the statistics bear it out, which is why it's not irrational. It's not irrational for women that are abused and live a life of subjugation and terror to not leave that marriage because very often the alternative to leaving is even worse than staying. But some women make a very courageous choice to try and be apart from their spouse. And I'm talking about women because it is the majority women. Every now and then it's a man, but most of the time it's women. And when these women leave, sometimes their spouses, their men, use the tools and misuse and manipulate the justice system in order to keep them involved in a cycle of poverty and conflict. And in the Jennifer Dulos case, which is just one example, but a particularly compelling one because she never did survive. Uh, there were about 500 motions, and I looked them up. At the time, I was at WGCH in Greenwich the day, the Friday she disappeared, and I reported on it that Friday at 4 o'clock when I was on the air because she didn't show up to pick up her kids at New Canaan Country School at 1 o'clock, and we all knew what a devoted mother she was, and we all had a terrible feeling of foreboding, and we know that the body was never recovered. And so I went on something called CT Civil Lookup, which you can go on anytime a judicial civil lookup that is for the public. And while you cannot see in many cases the substance of motions in family court, you can see that there are motions. And I started counting, and I counted over 400. And it turns out there were close to 500 motions that were filed in the two years prior to her disappearance and presumed death. Mark Fitch joins us now. He's the senior investigative reporter with CT Inside Investigator. This is his second time, at least on the show, for doing a compelling investigative piece, this time on Connecticut's family court system. What's wrong with it? What's right with it? Who are some of the players and what are some of the statistics that you and I need to know? The article is entitled, High Conflict is Connecticut's Family Court System Ignoring Abuse? And it is, may I just say to you, a compelling must read. Mark Fitch, welcome back to the show today. Hello.
2: Well, thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you having me on and, you know, I appreciate you reading our work.
0: Yes. Well, this particular article, I was very riveted and I want to get to as much of the fact finding as we possibly can. So tell us a little bit, Mark Fitch, give us a little bit of the big picture of what you found in terms of the conclusions that you reached and why about the family court system dynamic in Connecticut.
2: Sure, sure. So basically, you know, I spoke with a, a number of women who have been through the family court system or currently in the family court system, and they say that in this, what has happened over the past, you know, two decades or so has been a shift. You know, we all know the, uh, the kind of standard divorce story, you know, the, the women, the, the mother gets the kids and the father has to pay. Well, there's, there's been a, a shift over the years. Uh, towards you know ensuring that you know fathers are part of their kids' lives and for the most part that's a good thing but when it comes to abuse when it comes to these high conflict uh, divorce cases uh, women say that they are actually being advised not to even mention abuse because that could be used against them turned around and custody given to the abusive ex-husbands or fathers and that's been playing out because of this, kind of interesting, uh, but as far as I can tell, debunked uh, psychological um, theory uh, from years ago called parental alienation. And that has wound its way into the family court system, not only in Connecticut, but across the country, uh, that basically says that, you know, women when they're saying that they've been abused or that the children have been abused by their ex are really just trying to alienate the child away from their ex-partner. And it's, you know, mainstream science has kind of put the lid on this. There's been a number of studies. But uh, as far as the way it works out in the courts, if a father claims that he is being alienated from his children, the studies presented to the United Nations even – it results in a doubling of custody being awarded to the father, and one of the troubling aspects of this parental alienation claim, you know, so you have a mother that's essentially trying to protect her kids and herself from this abusive ex. Uh, what's troubling about it is that even if they don't know, if they don't know that they're alienating, if they if they're not actually you know, making these these claims and trying to, you know, encourage their kids to not want to be with their father because the, the kids in many cases don't want to be with the, the father or the ex because they're scared and they saw what happened in the household. That actually reinforces the parental alienation claim. So it's, it's essentially like if I accuse you of alienating me from my child and you say I'm not doing that, that means you're doing it worst of all, you know. Wow. So there's there's no defense for it. It results in women losing custody of their kids to the abusive ex. It results in um, children having to attend reunification therapy, another kind of debunked psychological theory that has made its way into the court system, uh, and where they're you know forced to attend these you know sessions or even camps with their, the 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 parent who they're afraid of. And I, wanna, I really I was shocked
0: about this. Yeah. I had never heard of these things before. I've never, you, well, know, you know, I never had heard of this. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, and, you know, honestly, just, it just came out today. I mean, ProPublica has done a lot of work on this out west with the reunification camps. But uh, the state of Colorado just passed a law saying that you can't force um, a child to leave their protective parents, you know, um, you know, be isolated from their protective parent in order to attend these reunification camps and, you know, therapies and everything like that. And this is really being pushed by, you know, I guess you could kind of call it a, an association or you know, cabal of lawyers and psychologists who conduct these judicial trainings for other attorneys and, you know, um, employees in the judicial system. Pushing this alienation theory, pushing these reunification therapies, and they make fortunes off of it. So, you know, there's a lot of money being thrown around here. There, these these sessions, these uh, psychologists, these guardians ad litem. You know, a guardian ad litem is an attorney that represents the child, um, and they often you know are fully educated in this parental alienation uh, stuff and reunification therapy and they're all pushing this this these narratives they're all pushing these theories and they stand to make and they're charging 200 to 500 dollars an hour to do this stuff and that's coming right out of the parents pockets uh and it's court mandated so there is a massive financial incentive to use these debunked psychological ideas uh in family court and what happens is not only is the child harmed, you know, by being forced to undergo these, you know, sometimes traumatic therapy sessions, uh, but obviously the, the spouse that's trying to separate, that's trying to leave this abusive situation is also being harmed because she has to pay for part of it too. And you're, you, when you start talking about these cases where you've got 500 you know, filings, you're, you're paying your own lawyer's fees. Now you're paying the guardian ad litems fees. Now you're paying the uh, psychiatrist or psychologist fees. You're paying for these, you know, if you have to go to reunification camp, that can cost thousands of dollars. So there is an obvious incentive, a financial incentive for the people working in this system to push these, you know, debunked ideas that are, you know, generally not accepted anywhere except in the family court system. Uh, and everybody's making a huge, you know, a huge profit, and the parents are losing out. And in the cases where there's abuse uh, against either the children or uh, the ex the ex-wife, you know, they're essentially still being abused in a way. I mean, they're 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 afraid to speak out. They're afraid to come forward. And if they even mention, like, hey, this person hurt me in the past, and I think he can be a dangerous individual, if they say that, then they're at risk of losing the very, you know, children that they're trying to protect to the custody of that individual. So it's, it's swung in such an opposite direction that it, it's, it's almost nonsensical at this point.
0: We're chatting with Mark Fitch, and we're talking about his in-depth report today in Connecticut, Inside Investigator. I want to just quote a little bit from the article. You say that a study published by George Washington University and co-authored by Joan Meyer, who heads the National Family Violence Law Center looked at 2,000 court opinions and found that courts are extremely skeptical, skeptical of abuse allegations. When fathers make claims of parental alienation, the courts frequently reject the abuse claims and the mother often loses custody of the child. And this is what she wrote, um, or, or quote from her. It says, um, the findings indicate that where guardians ad litem or custody evaluators are appointed, Outcomes show an intensification of court skepticism toward mothers, but not fathers' claims, and custody removals from mothers, but not fathers. A similar finding was made in a report of the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women and Girls, presented to the UN Human Rights Council in July, you wrote of 2023, I assume you meant 2022, which labeled parental parental alienation a, quote, pseudo-concept. And this woman or man, Reem Al Salem, wrote When a father has alleged alienation by the mother, her custody rights have been removed 44% of the time. When the situation was reversed, mothers gained custody from fathers only 28% of the time. Thus, when alienation is accused, mothers were twice as likely to lose custody compared to fathers. And then they talk about the catastrophic implications of this bias on the children and on the families themselves. So why is it, let me ask you this, Mark Fitch, why is it that women are not believed by family court judges when a a great amount of family court judges are themselves women?
2: It's a tough, you know, I, I, you know, it's a, that's a tough, Question to answer, but I, I really think that some of these ideas that have been pushed for decades now into the family court system uh, tends to influence the judges in, in this matter. In, in this manner, and you know what's especially galling is, oftentimes there's documented cases, there's you know DCF substantiations, there's police reports. Like you, you don't have to look very hard to to figure this out. And, you know, equally troubling to me is you don't have to look very hard to, you know, you know, find severe criticism and questioning of this parental alienation theories and these reunification camps. I mean, Google is very easy to work uh, and it seems like nobody's done it. But there is a lot of money to be made here. And I think, you know, also, also when you get into these cases where there's 500 filings, a lot of these judges just want to see this stuff go away. And, you know okay, you you know, abuse, we're not even going to listen to it because we want to get this over and done with and we want to get you out of this court system. Um, so pitch, stay with us. They, we're
0: going to be yeah. right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Mark Fitch is with us. His article is called High Conflict is Connecticut's Family Court System Ignoring Abuse. Um, Mark, one of the things that you seem to talk a lot about was, and and you're talking a lot about following the money here, Uh, you say that there is sort of entrenched money in these reunification camps and these GALs, and you mention a former family court judge, Linda Monroe, who was a very well respected former family court judge, and then later went on to uh, be one of the foremost mediators of family court disputes here in Fairfield County and elsewhere in Connecticut. Why do you talk about her in the article?
2: Oh, well, I mentioned, I, I mentioned Judge Monroe because she was also one of the founding board members of the Connecticut chapter of the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts called the AFCC. It's basically a national trade association that provides services for hire to family courts. And it includes lawyers, mediators, custody evaluators, psychologists, guardians ad litem. Uh, you know, Monroe was instrumental in creating the uh, guardian ad litem um, you know, program here in Connecticut, you know, establishing the, the, the rules and all that, all that kind of stuff. But the AFCC is one of the biggest pushers of parental alienation. And, you know, not only that, you know, they they conduct, you know, trainings for the Connecticut uh, Bar Association on parental alienation and dispute resolution and reunification uh, therapy. And not only that, but Monroe is now heading up a reunification organization out of Massachusetts that up until COVID-19 ran reunification camps. So, Yes, I mean she she has been a, you know, well-known and recognizable uh judge in the family court system. I mean, one of the top judges in the family court system. And but she is fully ensconced into this these ideas and have, you know, she conducts some of these trainings for current, you know, attorneys and judicial employees. So yeah, it's I I used it as an example to show just how ensconced this is into Connecticut's own family court system.
0: Now, Mark Fitch, you say that 95% of divorces are not the cases that we're talking about here today, right? About only no. yeah. Okay, so we're talking about 5% of highly contested, very acrimonious cases. Um can you can you tell me a little bit you, you keep referring to this reunification as debunked who debunked it? And in what way are you convinced that it is that it is just not the right thing to force kids to do?
2: Well, you know, I'm 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 going off, you know, the Family Violence Law Center uh, spoke with an expert down there. they they head of uh, policy. And basically, the reunification camps are kind of built on the back of uh, cult deprogramming, essentially. Mm -hmm. So when somebody alleges that their child has been alienated from them, it's essentially saying they've been brainwashed to dislike the other parent. So that reunification therapy has to, you know, supposedly unbrainwash this child and by, you know, putting them with the parent that they're afraid of or, you know, don't want to be, don't want to be a part of. So and in I a think way, if you it's not if you
0: believing children really to some extent, it's not it's
2: not believing children. And some of these some of these you know cult deprogramming things have previously been debunked. And you can you can look up the studies on these. And I think if you if you look at the you know reporting that's been done by um, ProPublica just recently, uh, there was a story out today talking about these reunification therapies and what goes on inside them. Some children are claiming that the reunification therapy itself is abusive.
0: So there's, I mean,
2: there's, there's a lot to be had here.
0: Yeah. You know, it's very interesting for me because, you know, in my other life I'm a probate judge and um, I always call probate court, you know, basically family court without divorce, right? Because the issues Mm -hmm. that come up are among siblings and parents and step and all of that. It's everything but divorce, but, but, there are cases occasionally that come up in which the divorce comes in. And I'll give you an example. Um, Sometimes I have contested name changes where a child will come forward at 15, 16, or 17, and they will say, I want to change my name. I was given my father's name, but for various reasons, which I'm happy to explain to you, Judge, um, I don't want to have that name anymore. Um, I don't like my father and I don't want his name and I want my mother's name or my grandmother's name or a name I make up or whatever it is. But when you're a minor, the other parent has a right to say no. And so I've had a couple of these contested matters where essentially a father has been fighting with a child over whether or not the child can change their name. And what it brings up is a lot of this ugliness that happened in in the dynamic. And of course, many times I will say to the child, we can go through this now or you can wait till you're 18 and then you don't need to ask your parent either one for consent. You can change your name to whatever you want. And then in a couple of instances where this has come up, the child has backed away and has said, you know what, instead of fighting again, I'm going to wait till I'm 18. But, but it has given me a, a real window, an insight, Mark, into, into the dynamic of a children's perspective. And I'm not going to use the word alienation. I'm just going to say the children have seen their lives develop in a certain way and their relationship with a parent in a certain way. And at some point they reach a conclusion about that parent. And I don't think a reunification camp is ever going to change that. That's my own opinion.
2: Yeah. And, you know, essentially it's forcing the child to do something that they are afraid to do. And, you know, even, even under, you know, non-abuse circumstances, you know, the, the court ordering something like that could probably be a bit traumatic for the child. Uh, so, and, you know, all, all in the effort to try to do something that might not necessarily need to be done. I mean, some of this reunification therapy really came out of the child welfare system where, you know, the state would have custody of a child either in the foster system or in some kind of, you know, congregate setting. And they would want to reunify the child with their parent from whom they'd been removed in order to get the child out of the state system uh, where there were no other alternatives. But in family in family court, in these situations, you have it's not really necessary. You have a protective parent and you have a parent that is potentially dangerous and Trying to take, you know, forcibly remove the child from the protective parent to put them into the custody of the potentially dangerous parent, it doesn't really make any sense. Uh, So, you know, while it may have, you know, essentially the reunification idea migrated from the welfare system over into the family court system.
0: That's fascinating. Mark, I'm going to take a quick call. Uh, Barbara, is Barbara still there? Barbara? Hello, I am. Yes, Barbara, you only have about a minute. I'm sorry. We'll probably have to have a part okay. two with Mark Fitch about this, but go ahead, please. No, I just wanted to also say I'm, I'm
2: in a similar situation in the family court system, um, and there's one thing that I do want to note here is that a lot of times in the child's best interest and, and, and those types of documentation, some of the things say like paternal preference and rights of father, but then part B will just say maternal preference. So it seems as though mothers don't really have the same amount of rights as fathers in Connecticut, and that's something I've been digging into. Um, And also, one last thing to point out is in 2016, they did a task force in the state of Connecticut on how domestic violence affects children. And if you read through the presentations, they're pretty fascinating, because if you talk to the doctors, they will give you all the insight that you want on how this affects children but if you look at DCF and you look at the judicial presentations, they usually talk a lot about fatherhood rights as opposed to what they're really trying to talk about in this task force situation. So that might be something you want to look into, Mark. Oh, absolutely. And part of part of what's in the piece, you know, it's obviously a very long piece, is the the push towards, you know, fatherhood rights and and things of that nature which may have swung too far in the opposite direction where now the the women that I'm speaking to were saying, you know, we barely stand a chance and everything seems to be geared more towards uh, paternal rights rather than, you know, best rather than best interest of the child or, or you know, what the mother is, you know, coming to court and saying is, you know, potentially troubling here. So, Mark,
0: uh, yeah, have, that's absolutely in there. We have callers who want to reach you offline. How can they reach you?
2: Um, you can reach out to me at Mark, that's M-A-R-C at InsideInvestigator.org. We also have a tips line that at insideinvestigator.org. And, uh, you know, be sure to sign up for our emails because you can get all our stories. We only email you twice a week, so.
0: And they're really good emails because I'm on the list. Uh, Mark, we (laughs) We appreciate that. We may have to do a part two because this was a very long investigative piece and I feel like there's more to get to. So you may hear from our producer, Melissa, offline to do this again, maybe tomorrow or the next day. I'd really appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Mark Fitch, for doing the work inside Investigator. And the title of the article is High Conflict is Connecticut's Family Court System Ignoring Abuse. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll be back behind the mic tomorrow. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.
1: Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen.